Everywhere you look, cannabis enthusiasts, patients, and consumers are turning away from pesticides. Most pesticides approved for growing food are not approved for use with cannabis, and yet there they are in the market all the time. These food crop pesticides may be tested as safe enough in very low doses when watered down and outside in the rain on food products, but most have never been tested to be burned and inhaled into the lungs like cannabis often is, and even more so when concentrated like cannabis oil for dabbing. Pesticides run the range of risk from untested for safety when growing cannabis all the way to specifically toxic when used in cannabis. And the crazy thing is, is that some people and even companies still use them. Many growers have grown accustomed to relying on chemical pesticides when they get spider mites or russet mite or any one of the nasty bugs that attack cannabis crops. Nearly nobody wants to use the sketchy pesticides, but some growers just don't have the experience to rely solely on holistic horticulture practices. And that's too bad, too, because people have been growing without chemical pesticides for decades. It's just that cannabis happens to be in a pocket of modern agriculture that has been late to adopt. The damn thing is that many states are not even testing regulated cannabis for pesticides. They do it on an honor system, and that sure has not worked out well so far. When the state does not test for pesticides, it pretty much makes a mockery of the legal system's claim to provide a superior product to the black market. In the legal market right now, you still have to know your grower, and that's the same thing as unmed unregulated medical was. Cannabis consumers are beginning to get educated, though, about pesticides and pesticide regulation and are starting to demand cannabis grown without pesticides and using other sustainable growing methods like using living soil. Cannabis growers with vision, though, have seen this coming for a long time, and many growers are already migrating away from pesticides and are leading the industry with really clean cannabis products that consumers flock to. Today, we're going to talk about working with nature instead of against it. We're going to talk about using beneficial insects as allies to eat the bugs that are pests. And there really is a difference. Some bugs will defend your garden instead of destroy it. And this is a well-established agricultural practice. It's not new. It's just new to cannabis, like so many other things now that cannabis is being normalized. Today, we're going to encourage you to use bugs, not drugs, to defend your cannabis garden. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Shane Young. Shane founded Natural Enemies in 2014 to focus on encouraging the use of beneficial insects in commercial cannabis. Prior to that, Shane managed acres and acres and acres of ornamental greenhouses for a greenhouse growers magazine top 25 horticulture company. After personally designing, transitioning, and running the company's successful beneficial insects program, he chose to switch gears and bring his expertise to the cannabis industry to help producers reduce residual pesticides in medical cannabis. Welcome to the show, Shane. 
Hey, Shango. Thanks for having me on, man. It's nice to connect again. Yeah, totally. It's great to have you back on. So, you know, for most growers uh, familiar with using insects at all, they're used to using ladybugs and praying mantis to fight pests in their garden. What are the advantages to cannabis growers to move beyond using these traditional bugs and using a wider range of beneficial insects like the commercial ornamental horticulture uh, industry does? Yeah, no, good question. And, and when you're talking about praying mantis and ladybugs, those are kind of uh, generalists per se that, you know, they'll feed on many different things that may be in your garden. They may not be as aggressive as, aggressive as some of the species that we carry, though. Um, what we do at this stage is there's very specific predatory mites that are actually used for, you know, the pest concerns that people have in their operations. Um, you know, the biggest thing that we go into is, you know, we start from the bottom, you know, fungus net issues, uh, root aphids and cannabis, uh, and then it goes into broad mite and recent mites are completely, you know, tearing companies apart because of how it, how difficult it is to figure out what you have because the magnification is so small to see these pests in. And then you still have the common ones, you know, two-spot spider mite, thrips, uh, a lot of different things. So the species that we carry are very specific and uh, I guess they're kind of cultured uh, specifically for one job in mind and that's you know what the pests are that people have right on um, why wouldn't I want a more generalized uh, insect to be working for me instead of a specialist so that it just you know I can use one insect and it gets rid of all my bugs or is that just unrealistic no, it's a good question, and it makes sense. It, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a generalist out there. You know, it's helpful in a lot of different situations, I guess you'd say. Uh, but when you have a specialist, you know, they have one main job, and that's to get a re get rid of the pests that you have that you're most concerned with. You know what I mean? I mean, if you have a ladybug and praying mantis, they're not going to do a whole lot for the microscopic mites that you're after. Mm. Uh, so you want to use specific species that are geared towards your specific pest. Eradication comes about. Uh, they clean things up a lot quicker, basically, rather than just a generalist that's roaming around eating, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I know that you just uh, mentioned a few of the, the pests that you deal with, but um, I want to get a better picture of, of what kind of pests uh, beneficial insects can be used against. So, you know, like every grower pretty much has got their arch enemy, right? The thing that they've been trying to get rid of on and off for, you know, some time. You know, can you give me, a, a, you know, an idea? Just name off some of the most common pests that you are working with so people get an idea of, oh, all right, the one the one that I'm concerned about is on the list. Yeah, no, it, it's good. And it's been fairly simple to, you know, compile this, this list of what people's concerns are, you know, coming from traditional ag, it was, you know, very common pest in agriculture versus when I come into cannabis, it seems like one of the most common pests that we encounter, again, are from the rooting system, you know, fungus gnats. And the biggest thing about those is that the larval stages of those will feed on your rooting system of your plants, which, you know, I believe is one of the most important part of your plants. I mean, obviously the flower on the back end is great, but, you know, you have to have healthy plants moving into, you know, from mother to veg into your flower room. So uh, plant health is number one. And uh, fungus gnats, I, I don't think anybody should take lightly. I mean, they spread uh, diseases, they carry other pests with them, and they can spread to a room and, you know, uh, and, and can be Become real a real issue uh, if you don't take care of it. The biggest thing about that is what I learned is uh, the amount of watering you know that the cannabis plant demands. It, it, it amazed me because I had never cultured you know cannabis. I'd never grown it myself, and uh, I just recall working with one of the 502 growers in Washington that where I gave them soil mites to take care of their fungus net issues. And you know two weeks later he called me back and told me I was full of shit basically. And I'm like God. I'm like the only reason I know these don't work is you know they could freeze or if they they could drown out basically. So. So he's like, dude, he's like, 
you know how much water we're feeding our plants at this point? And, you know, when he told me a gallon of water uh, for a three-gallon bucket every two days, possibly, my, my first uh, thought was that we were pushing out reproduction, basically. So we ran some trials. We did uh, additional applications to be effective with these things. Uh, fungus gnats, but, you know, what's tearing people apart is root aphids as well. Those are huge pests uh, that people have problems with. And, and, and you know, I'm always honest with everybody. They got to be one of the most difficult to, uh, to get rid of, to eradicate. Um, generally, when we work with people, we talk about sanitation first. Uh, we talk about scoping their soil that they're bringing in, basically, you know, because eggs can be in that soil. So rather than trying to cure them of a situation with our product, we try to get to the root of it on, you know, what can what steps need to be taken first before we start using our product moving forward. And then it comes to rates at that stage to be effective. So uh, fungus gnats, uh, root aphids uh, in the soil is, is, is common, is very common on what we deal with. Um, moving forward from there, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, two-spot spider mite has to be one of the most common pests, whether it's in cannabis or... It's like the uh, poster boy of, it, of bugs in cannabis. It, it's fairly common. I mean, everybody should know what a two-spot spider mite looks like. It's been around. It's, it's very visible by the eye. Uh, it's easy to tell what it is. So pest identification is simple, but yeah, it, it's been around a long time. Um, and, and from there, you know, thrips are very common as well in agricultural crops, regardless of if it's cannabis or not. Um, but uh, a couple of the most difficult as well has been uh, broad mites and uh, hemp russet mites as well. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke about two-spot spider mites. You can easily identify them because you can see them with your eye. Depends on how old you are, Shango. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for the most part, uh, you're going to need a scope. You're going to need a high-powered scope to take a look at these things. Uh, it, uh, from what we've gathered, 60-plus magnification is what's needed. And, uh, you know, my old, my old position as a plant health manager, I had the luxury of being 20 minutes away from Oregon State University. I had a, a research facility next to us, an extension service. Um, and we were able to uh, touch base on, you know, what they use in research for out in the field and, you know, in their, uh, in their offices when they have things. So that's where I started about 10 years ago is using specific scopes and able to uh, have pest identification. Um, and what's actually coming up more that I really uh, didn't focus very much on was, is foliar aphids as well. Um, it's probably been about in the last three and a half years, 1% of, of one of the pests that we deal with. But, you know, this last year, it seems to be like there was a string of growers that continually ran into it. And I don't know if that is because of our reach at this point as a company on how many people that we work with, where we are receiving more calls about it. But it, it just seems like it's a growing pest concern with people as well. Right on. You know, um, my experience uh, supports what you're saying about the uh, once the once you've got roof aphids or or some kind of infestation in the substrate, that uh, that things can go to hell pretty quickly. In my experience, once once they're in the roots, the whole plant starts to get a little you know sick and lackadaisical, which creates an opportunity for you know secondary pests. So maybe maybe we can consider the the root pest to be like the gateway pest, which which you know breaks down the ho the Trojan horse through the door and then and then these secondary pests come um do you find that ha ha happening at the commercial level as well oh yeah no you you hit it right on the head man i mean uh like i spoke about previous a healthy plant you know sanitation from the very beginning these these are the key step there, there's not one thing that you do in pest management that's going to take care of all your problems it, it, it it's a it's a whole slew of things that go into it you know uh sanitation general plant health if you have a problem in your rooting system and you have a weak plant 
basically it's it's opening itself up to other issues concerning you know secondary could be disease it could be additional pests because you know it's kind of like you and i if we're sick we're not at our best basically there's no way for us to fight off other things except we got to get through it so you know at the commercial scale for sure man i I think uh people are still going through you know even though I guess recreational use has or cultivation has been around for you know four to five years, maybe six. I can't recall when it passed in Colorado, but um, you know all these people are still figuring out how to grow at scale. You know what I mean? And it's I can't imagine it being an easy task at all when you're used to growing twenty plants or fifty or whatever it may be. You know now you have to manage a team. You don't you don't just get to be with your plants every single day. You're doing other things as well, even though you're head of cultivation or you're just IPM management, whatever the company may be. There's so many things that need to be done. You know, we work with people as 50,000 plants. I mean, I, I can't imagine even doing that myself. So, um, yeah, definitely, you know, to answer your question in, in a roundabout way, uh, plant health is great. Uh, and, and one of the key things in using an integrated approach to, to pest management with beneficial insects. But, uh, yeah, you hit it right on the head. When you're using beneficial insects to defend your garden, um, do you use that strategy at all like some growers do where you, you leave a couple sick plants around as sacrificial lambs to attract the, the, the pests? Or does that just create an environment for new and you know, uh, secondary and original pests to come into your garden? Well, the way that I have always been trained is if you have a weak plant, you want to get it out of there. You don't you don't want to contaminate anything else in your room uh, because it could bring it to your plant, but also the surroundings of the plant that's sick, I guess you'd say. Um, so just in, you know, a, a training of mine has always been, you know, cleaning up leaves, dead leaves, dead, you know, twigs, things like that. Uh, if it's a sick plant, get it out of there, you know, cut your losses sometimes basically and just get rid of it may make things a lot easier for you moving forward um but for the most part i would get rid of it then try to save it you know when you talk about sacrificial plants you can use companion plants or beneficial plants basically that can and this may be outdoors where you can where it kind of invites beneficial insects or the natural you know predatory uh predatory insects from the outside into your garden outdoors indoors it's a little bit more difficult when people are working in sealed rooms you know yeah, uh, yeah. it, it, it kind of doesn't really make sense indoors but it can be helpful in the pots you know it, it goes back to plant health quite a bit Right on. So <clears throat> I think that the, you know, the elephant in the room as far as like adoption of beneficial insects always seems to be um, growers who have relied so heavily on chemical pesticides for all these years growing underground during the prohibition era, you know, indoors that, that they have, they've worked out their tech, they know their schedule, they, and, and they're like, you know, they depend on it to deliver. And and now because of the huge pushback both uh, by state regulators and by individual consumers who don't want chemical pesticides sprayed on the plants, suddenly now you know a lot of these traditional growers are being pushed to have to consider beneficial insects and give up the bottles that they've, you know, that they've wetted for all of these years. You know, what do you say to these growers that are are clutching on to their chemical um, pesticides to help move their heart, if you will, away from using what they've relied on, move them towards what is a more holistic solution and working with nature. How do you get them over the hump of belief? It's a great question. And it's obviously something that we deal with on a daily basis, you know, and, you know, not to 
defend people who want to use sprays in their garden because things have worked well in the past. But, you know, to say something about that, a lot of people, that's been their only option. That's what they're, that, that's what they know. You know what I mean? That's how people are trained at this point. You know, being at the company I was at previous to mine, you know, we had a, we had a preventative spray program for 28 years that was in place. And my, my reach or my jump into beneficial insects was the ineffectiveness of sprays. It was uh, worker safety that I was concerned about. Uh, it was managing people around sprays and not growing plants anymore. Um, so to kind of answer your question, we, we don't, I, I guess I'd say education is first. I'm not here to try to talk somebody into using our product. I, I try to give them information on the benefits of using our product, you know, and the species that we have and, and, and what we can do for you and with you and how that transitions to, you know, health all around, whether it's your plants or, you know, the consumers who use it on the back end as well. And, you know, obviously, you know, past pesticide testing too. So that's a huge thing that is coming up in the industry that's going to be looked at. Well, not coming up, has been around for a while. Uh, that's continually looked at on a daily basis so uh, I always you know tell not not just me but my guys in the office and I think I might have chosen these words from you in the past in conversation Shango that you know it's even on our website it's choose beneficial insects uh, I tell my guys we're not here to hard sell people we're here to educate them first on what can be used for their specific pest concerns you know and then moving forward let's hold their hand Let, any questions that people have that come up you know whether you've been using biocontrols for two years or ten I still get calls from people that I set up a program four years ago that have been a customer for a while that have a question that comes up you know so a lot of it is experience and i think the biggest hurdle besides the skepticism of it actually being an effective pest management tool is is the way that you kind of have to see to believe type thing like it actually works for you you know what i mean yeah and, well, and well hit, hit that part even harder right give me an example or two of a, of a big trans uh, a big commercial grow that has made the transition because a lot of folks they're just afraid of jumping without a parachute or feeling like like if they go if they start making the transition and it doesn't work out that they're going to lose the whole crop like like, like like give me a give me a win success story here so people can kind of picture picture how it works at the commercial level during the second part of the show we'll talk more about walking somebody through the transition but just jump to the end and, and give me an explanation of a win well it's uh, funny you bring that up i mean and and before the show i was as we were speaking about a, a new hire of mine that i have you know he was an indoor tier three producer in washington and uh, i didn't know this until he was actually working in my office uh but i recall i think it was december of last year when i started working with his company and he said shane you know what can we do for this here's our problems and i map out um controls that I, usually what i tell people if it was me this is how i would approach it basically here's the species to use here's what's going to be aggressive here's the days to order here's how much to order basically uh this is what i think is going to be effective for you and at that stage he kind of took it and ran with it calls me a week later asks a couple questions and within two months he had a full transformation of you know when i say chemicals i use that term loosely as just sprays but they were using omri listed organic sprays basically a lot of the times are oil based which are you know immediate gratification it dissipates quickly uh, but within a couple of months we had fully transformed him over fast forward into i just hired him 2 months ago to represent me in washington state and and he's like you know when i called you a year ago basically he goes i had to i had to give my owner a guarantee that your product was going to work he goes you never 
guaranteed that your product doesn't work. You actually told me this isn't a guarantee, man. You know what I mean? This is this is what I think is going to be helpful. Again, here's here's what what I would use and what we would do. And he ran with it from there. So again, in our previous conversation, it seems like a company needs to have that guy there that is really interested in doing it. If there's an owner that's pushing his head grower to to do something else that that is out of their comfort level, then sometimes it's really difficult. So I try to lay things out up front towards people on where their roadblocks may come in at, where we might have problems, because I don't just want to make a guarantee. And again, it starts out with education. So I think that's a, an easy story to tell, as this guy tells me as he works for me. And I was like, I, I, I basically told the owner that I, that I was going to guarantee that this is going to work. And he goes, basically crossing fingers, everything worked out real well, and it's no issues at this point. So, um, you know, that was, uh, that was a great success story on my end after hearing from him how he kind of went behind my back and made the guarantee on his own to his, his owner and not for me, basically. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And there's there's so many um, variables to it. And, um, and you really do need somebody on the inside who's going to be dedicated to learning a little bit about it and, and paying attention to it. Um, because it's, you know, while it is a... Um, a comprehensive solution and works really effectively. It's not like a real simple plug and play. It isn't like a set it and forget it kind of thing. You uh, like you know most solutions for 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 a big garden. You have to you have to massage it. Um, let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Shane Young, founder of Natural Enemies Biocontrol. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial-scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. 
What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design, and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light dep and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Brandstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light depth techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light depth and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Shane Young, founder of Natural Enemies Biocontrol. So during the first set of the show, we talked about um, the, the approach to beneficial insects and, and what they are and, and why they can be a great teammate for defending your garden. So, so now that we've kind of given everybody an idea of, of what beneficial insects are about, let's talk about thinking through the story problem of, of introducing beneficial insects to a garden. Um, uh, when you go and you meet with a new client, I'm sure that you walk them through a first couple steps so you can figure out whether or not the garden is, is an, an appropriate target for beneficial insects and to kind of think through what the transition will even look like. Will you walk all of us through that so that people can consider it for their own gardens? Sure. And, you know, most gardens are uh, a proponent or can be used uh, with beneficial insects. A lot of it uh, has to do with people's pest issues. And as we spoke about, there's specific species that go after certain pests. But, you know, it seems like uh, companies that culture or the or culture beneficial insects, we, they've been around for 30 plus years. You know, it isn't anything new. Uh, again, it's a matter of education on showing a customer what can be used. And uh, it's not just what that we run into, but it, we, we also pride ourselves on giving people the why you know what i mean I, I don't want people to come to us and be like tell me what to do give them something to do and they don't take any uh you know they don't take any steps on their own to make sure it's working right but we want to provide them what to do we want to provide them why to do it and then we leave a lot of work on them as well because because it's not like what you said earlier it's not like you said it and forget about it you know sprays isn't that way either there's a lot of monitoring that goes into it so you know when we walk into a facility it's uh, you know obviously introductions uh it's pest concerns it's uh you know where do we start and what do we do and my biggest thing with people is uh or with companies is obviously you know we want to start with your mother plants we want to start with your veg we don't want to we don't want to start at the very end where you're having spider mite problems that you know seven weeks 
weeks into flower and you know what what do i do at this point and i i, I kind of leave them on their own for that to figure out uh but you know we can be helpful as well uh, it depends on what state they're in and what they can and can't use basically um so walking into a facility it, it, it's again just gathering information it's fact finding to see what their production is like see what their protocol is see what they've been doing in the past and you know why they're coming to us to really formulate a plan to be helpful to these people um and and you know when i talk about what sprays they've used in the past there's some chemicals that can be used that will actually deter predatory mites from even coming in and helping so it's upfront information it's when to use it uh how to use it properly and where to begin uh, I, I generally try to talk people into, re regardless of how big a company is, you know, you obviously want to jump in right away and take care of all their rooms, you know, that they have problems with or are interested in. But we actually try to start with people uh, in their mother rooms and if they're sharing that with a veg as well, because if you start out clean and your plant is healthy and you push that into flower, you know, chances are there shouldn't be too many issues going into the last flowering stages there. Um, you need to have somebody that is, again, interested in doing this. You want somebody to take responsibility. Uh, you want people to scout and monitor and tell us what they're seeing so that, you know, we can make our comments on what they're seeing and why that is, basically. It's not always the what. But it's always the why, you know, why they're seeing this, basically. It's, it's being informational to people. Um, right on. It's interesting because what you're describing is a balance, right? It's a, you, you want to continually uh, course correct as you go so that you can keep this, this balance um, where, where, where the plants are healthy and the beneficial insects are able to do their job and, and just keep the population of the pests as low as possible. I, I, I'm assuming that it never goes to zero. It's, it's about keeping them in control control. No, you touched on it. And, and we have different types of customers and we have customers who want zero tolerance. And where I came from, zero tolerance was not feasible, but I, I kind of disagree with that. If you pay enough and you use enough species and predators a specific amount of time, you're not going to have any issues. We have a lot of companies that, you know, rather than using the scouting and monitoring technique, they would rather pay more up front with us uh, to have the specific program in place where they don't have to worry about it. And that concerns me because regardless of how much you put in, there could always be something else that may come up. You know, if you're using a species that's specific for thrips, you know, maybe you're getting spider mites or vice versa. Um, so it, it, it's real difficult. Uh, I, I'm sorry, it, it, it's not difficult. People just have different ways of approaching pest management. But when you do have a small pest population, that's what I tell people. I'm smiling right now, Shango. It's like it's, it's, called, <laughs> pest, it's called pest management for a reason. You know what I mean? Right. It, it, it's monitoring, you know, populations of good versus the bad. And, you know, do I need to make a decision? And what product do I use? Is it slow release sachet or is it active adults, you know, to help clean up my area quickly? So, again, that's where we come in to be helpful with people. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And, I, and I've heard people poo-poo beneficial insects about how they're not 100%. And my thought is, you know, the people that I know who spray enough to feel like they're at 100%, they're putting themselves at risk with other plant problems because they're spraying so much, you know, especially if they, you know, if they're, if they're spraying oils and they're moving towards bloom, you know, you use this example that I, I found very interesting. You said, you know, you want to start with the mothers. So you get them early because you don't want to end up in week seven of bloom with, um, with spider mites. Um, and so what if you do find yourself at week seven with spider mites? Can beneficial insects be used for a, like an acute hot 
problem now in bloom like like at a, at the end or or is it is it too late at that point for beneficial insects to have helped and you you really have to start early in your cycle uh, so one thing to comment on well is when you say people poo poo you know beneficial insects you know that's why I got into it is because my spray program wasn't as effective as I thought it was you know what oh, I mean so there's yeah. there's two there's two sides of the story obviously you can spray and still have problems you can use beneficial insects and still have problems with it you know I just want to comment on that off the bat that's what transitioned to me on beneficial use is because the spray program I had put in place actually I was like God I just sprayed a couple days ago and I still have mites over here I'm like it doesn't make sense so what's a better way of dealing with things what's more effective uh what's healthy you know to the safety what's healthy and safety and safe you know for employees that you have is 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 looking for something else and again it goes back to education on that um fast forward to your next question on you know what if you do find yourself in bloom in week seven you're cropping out in eight weeks you know it's difficult i'll be forward with you it's difficult to take care of a problem at that stage with beneficial insects because you have a very limited pool of what you can pull to use that for Uh, a lot of the times the predatory mites are uh they find it very difficult to crawl across you know the flower and the trichomes you know you, you if you can imagine a tiny little insect uh trying to climb across you know hairy plants and then you and then you add the stickiness of the flower into it it's an unfriendly environment number one so that comes before it gets to that stage that's where the monitoring and scouting comes in on you know if we have any issues let's take care of it before it really gets into this stage at that point um there's a couple products that we do use that i call our flyers versus predatory mites that are roaming around the canopy of your plant uh that can be helpful and again all honesty shango i tell people i'm like you can use this uh, obviously there's no guarantees going into it and it's going to cost you a lot of money you know to clean up a situation quickly uh because that you need to understand that there's also a life cycle of pests that you have and when you introduce a beneficial insect or uh, a predatory bug i guess you'd say uh, it's not like they sit there and eat all day long until your pests are gone you know they have a resting phase similar as 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 we do um they need to rest uh, then they need to reproduce and be able to eat again i mean so um yeah i mean it, it is difficult at that stage yes it can be done uh i tell people you know physical removal might be your best bet rather than buying products from me why don't you use one of your company employees you know you can use a, a, a low-powered vacuum cleaner you can physically remove them with uh you know paper cloth towels that are wet basically and then people laugh at me they're like do you know how many plants that we have problems with and i said well you know this could have been prevented basically with different techniques heading up to this. You know what I mean? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. So it sounds like, so yeah, if you have an acute problem right before you harvest, yeah, you can throw money and beneficials at it and labor and do your best for it. But really, um, you know, you may want to just start with your mother plants and and understand that the, the cycle that you're in right now may not be as successful as you want, but start on the next uh, cycle and, and be forward looking. You know, you said something else that I found really interesting. You know, one of the reasons why some people push against beneficials is is because the trichomes are so sticky and they're so effective at at gumming up and grabbing uh, insects that people say to me, you know, why would I want to add more insects to my garden? Because then my final product is going to have more uh, dead captured insects in the trichomes so so when people when people ask you about that what do you say 
I, I try not to laugh, number one. Uh, <laughs> well, no, man, you know, and, and again, I, and I hate to keep preaching the same words, but education becomes first, you know what I mean? That's it. You know, a lot of the times, like I said, it's an unfriendly environment for them where we physically, we've watched these things because the natural searching of a predatory mite in general, you know, if it's on your plant or canopy is to go upwards, basically. And I, I recall being in Portland here one time and a guy called me, he's like, hey, man, you know, what we're doing is not working. And I want to make sure that we were doing it at the right stage. And this is when I started out four years ago in cannabis. And I remember walking over to his place and, and, and literally releasing a species called Persimilis, excuse me, for two-spot spider mite. And instantly, I, I basically just watched it climb up the stem and it gets to the flower and it turns right back down. And then it climbs right back up and goes down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And uh, basically, it's going to die of exhaustion a lot quicker. Uh, so when people are concerned about species or, or predatory mites getting stuck in their flower for the most part they don't go there oh. i guess you'd say um because it because it's difficult for them and, and, and it's really hard for them to thrive and even move anywhere in that stage if i can recall in the last four years doing this of pictures of people sending predatory mites like pictures of their flower to me and they're like hey man this is stuck in it and you know what is it number one because they were new customers of mine and i'm like god that looks like a predatory mite and i've, I've literally seen that picture one time i guess you'd say in four years where it's stuck on a flower uh the only other time it wasn't a predatory mite it was actually a minute pirate bug and it's called aureus and the aureus was stuck directly in the flower my customer pulled the aureus out and there was a spider mite in there that it was going after basically it got kind of stuck in like a, a, a hole basically going after it in the flower and i, I mean other than that there's I, I haven't received any responses from people that what you gave me is not working out because it's ending up in our flower. It's ending up in our buds. That, Very that, little, that happens. That makes sense. It may, it, it kind of just suggests it's a it's a growing myth, right? That that yeah, we've all seen um, you know uh, bugs, usually flying bugs, in the trichomes. But you're saying yeah, that's not the bugs that we're adding. So just because you've seen bugs caught in your trichomes doesn't mean that these are the same beneficial insects that you're going to use to defend your garden. Would that be a good way to say it? Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I mean, things that you see that are flying, I mean, it, the first thing that comes to mind is fungus gnats. You know, when people have an outbreak of fungus gnats, that's one of the bigger problems. Rather than them spreading disease through the rooting system, the adults that you have are more of a nuisance in traditional ag. But in cannabis, they get stuck to the flower. So it's like it becomes a real pain in the ass for people to deal with and work around at that stage. So, um, you know, a lot of the times what we offer to people as product as well we show them pictures of them images this is this is what it is because we don't want them to call us two weeks down the road and be like god i got this i got this other pest basically and they'll send us pictures and they're like no these guys are on your side you know this is this is what we talked about two weeks ago these are here's your a, teammates here's stop a killing picture them. of it yeah. yeah be nice to those guys so you know again it's it, it, we're trying to formulate a, as a company be it be as helpful as possible to people uh give them not as many options as possible really limited options on what we seem to be most effective in certain situations. You know, that was one of the most difficult things for me when I started out biocontrol is I felt like I learned a lot on my own, but I had to go through so many resources, a lot of people, a lot of time in order to formulate what I thought was best for a situation. Uh, something could be different based off experience, you know, that you run into or other people. So, you know, again, our company's focused on being helpful to people, offering them education uh, on what to do. And, and what I tell them, I'm like, this is what we found to be most effective. You can get information from somebody else and it may be different. And that's great if it's helpful and effective to you. That's awesome. We appreciate it. You know what I mean? Uh, but we just kind of speak from experiences, grower feedback and personal experiences through here. Yeah, right on. That's one hell of a sales cycle. You know, you, you play this role of evangelist and, you know, these are more than customers. You're actually 
you know, getting into partnership with these people because it has to evolve over months and there's a lot of education back and forth. Yeah, I totally get that. So, so let's get down to some, some more nitty gritty. So, so once a grower has decided that they want to make the transition, uh, from, uh, spraying to using beneficial insects, um, break it down for me what that looks like. Is it as simple as, you know, day one comes and the spraying is done and, and that's the same day you release the, the beneficials or is there a, a like a, like a clean up the plants period where the old pesticides have to, um, you know, volatilize and go away before you can add the beneficials. So uh, what we start to do with people is, you know, keeping uh, or speaking about what's already been spoken for is, you know, sanitation, plant health. We talk about those things, uh, but what we also talk about, and that's changed, I feel, in cannabis. And again, this is this is my thoughts on what's happening is, is and when I came from traditional agriculture, my rates for beneficial insects were based off per acre, whether it was 10, 20, or 30,000 predatory mites per acre. This is the species I would use. This is for, the, you know, the reason on how they're going to help you, basically. When I started recommending in cannabis, it became difficult because that wasn't working very well for me. And I had to make changes at that point. You know, again, number one is not starting with your flower plant. It's starting from the very beginning. You know, what that does, it, it, it eliminates uh, a lot of cost with people. It gives them a chance to work with things slowly and see it as it walks through from, you know, mother plants to their cuttings to veg before it gets into flower. It gives you three or four weeks to kind of have that education and balance and information on, you know, what to use and how to use it. Uh, when you talk about pesticide use, it, it, it's difficult to nail down like specific, you know, do this one, two, three, basically. But what we do with people is we ask them again, you know, what your procedure has been like in the past? What's your pest concerns, basically? What's your pest level at this point? You know, and if they can't answer some of these reasons, you can only give them a broad answer, I guess you'd say. Does the whole, uh, does the whole grow have to be sprayed down and clean? Because I'm assuming that, you know, if they're spraying residual, there'll be residual pesticides on surfaces and those would injure the newly introduced beneficial insects, right? I, I wouldn't encourage people to spray everything down to clean things up. Uh, I, I personally think that has been used differently by each company you work with, each person that you may work with at this stage. Um, I prefer to... Um, I prefer to have there be a, a pest level of some stage uh, so that there's a food source for the predatory mites to start working against, depending on what your pest is, um, rather than spraying something down to clean it up. I mean, yes, you, you can approach it that way as well, but then you need to wait X amount of days depending on the product that you use because there are residuals that are left over. But again, you know, what, what's nice is seeing what states are allowing uh, cultivators to use at this stage because a lot of it is oil-based, which dissipates quickly, which doesn't leave a whole lot of residues. You know, what I used to do about eight years ago starting to use it is I ran trials on what, what, what I sprayed and then and then spraying my plants with water just for hydration. You know what I mean? Yeah. That helps that helps wash residuals off. So maybe you can, you know, take that from seven days down to five days where we can apply the beneficial insects. Um, specific products is, is kind of what it's all about, Shango, because there are things that you can spray a day before and then release beneficial insects, you know, the next day or two days later. Uh, it may not be uh, an insecticide per se, maybe a bioinsecticide, which are like a lot of active funguses that people can use uh, that do not leave residuals that don't have have any you know re-entry hours after you spray them or it's limited to like four hours 
so it really depends on what they've been doing prior, you know, and kind of where their focus is on where they want to go. And if they really want to try this thing, you know, if they really want to walk the walk, then, you know, we ask very specific questions before we start working with somebody. The most difficult thing is when people call in and say, hey, can you send me some predatory mites? I'm like, yeah, we can. Let, you know, help me out here. So what happened about three years ago is we started creating uh, what I call a new customer inquiry, which people can fill out online. And that basically gives us 90% of the information that we need to be helpful with you and to show you how to walk from step one to step two to step three. You know, if you're using, if you're using Avid or Orthene or using something like this, residuals may be longer than if you're, hey man, I just use, you know, uh, I just use Botanigard on my product, which is an active fungus. You know, it's, it's, we could probably start the very next day or two days later. You know what I mean? So uh, the new customer inquiry really gives us information needed to be helpful to people on when they can start, what they can use and kind of what to expect moving forward forward in a program. Yeah, right on. And you know, as as we've gone on, I know that um, it pains you to go back again and again to the idea of the, of the education aspect, and that's how primary that is. But but the more you talk, the more I get it, that that each grow really is its own environment, and um, the, the what they're spraying is a variable, and, and um, there's just so many variables that is not one solution fits for everybody. And, and so really, it's about getting Getting in and 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 participating with them to figure out what their problem pro, you know program is going to be and then and then and then and doing the transition. So so I want to talk more about the um, the transition and especially about um, application rates. But we need to take our second break. So we're going to take that break and read. Be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Shane Young, founder of Natural Enemies Biocontrol. As cannabis normalization sweeps the country, knowledge of how to grow cannabis naturally and without synthetic inputs has become more and more available. In fact, probiotic growers are experiencing large yields and exceptional terpene profiles without using chemicals banned in their state. Move away from the risks inherent to chemical nutrients and instead invest in your soil. Use your soil again and again, reducing costs and improving the vitality of your soil with each cycle. Keep It Simple Organics has been a leader in aerated compost teas for years and now provide premium soils and nutrients to the cannabis industry. They offer a full line of all-natural inputs for building your soil, feeding microbe communities, and brewing nutrient and compost teas. They can even help you test your soil to spot deficiencies that may be holding you back. Check out their website at kisorganics.com. Enter the word SHANGO into the format checkout to receive 10% off your first order. Stop pouring bottled nutrients on your soil only to throw it out each cycle. Start building living soil that will serve you for years to come. Visit kisorganics.com and grow healthy thriving cannabis. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by true terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind used during the extraction process. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from true terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. 
What I mean is other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities. And when you stack those terpenes to make a blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True Terpenes also has strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some alpha-pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shane Golos, and our guest this week is Shane Young, founder of Natural Enemies Biocontrol. So in this last section, I want to talk about what it's actually like to do the application process. How do you go about applying the beneficial insects to the plants? It's a great question because uh, the problem that people or growers have been seeing is that, you know, information on the uh, packaging, on the liter containers or whatever you're using for application, you know, some of them say, uh, spread these all over your flower. And that's, you know, that that's not what you want to do in cannabis at this stage because you're going to be spending a lot of time trying to clean that up if you can eventually clean it all up, basically. So um, that's very difficult for people to do it. So again, it comes with, uh, you know, an initial conversation possibly, uh, people reaching out on how do I apply this. But for the most part, we try to write it out for people. We try to make things simple on, you know, obviously the label is going to say this. Uh, I'm sorry to say you're not going to follow that. You can't do that. That's not the way of doing it. So uh, it's difficult. It, it, it could come up in conversation. It can come up by email, whatever it may be. Uh, can you and, give and an again, example? Can you get real specific there, Shane? What kind of application example would you see on the labels that, that, um, that you would uh, educate somebody through. Like I try to make sure that the listeners have got, um, you know, real actionable results. So give, give us an example of why cannabis is different from the other crops that, that their, uh, beneficial insect may be labeled for. Sure. No, just what I touched on. Again, one of the labels says to spread the product over your flower. And it, it could be, uh, my, my first thought right now is that's uh, specifically for uh, a thrips predator, whether you're using Swirsky or uh, Cucamaris uh, of species for it, you know, because they want to say to spread it across the flower because that's generally where the thrips are going to congregate, basically. So one thing that you could do is, uh, I, I feel that it's uh, an old method of control, but still uh, an effective method is uh, you can use it to apply to the base or the stock of your plant, basically. Uh, you can create piles towards the stem where they'll crawl up into your plant that way. Um, a secondary way that you can do it is, is what we call, in the office, we call them hanging baskets. And what's funny is I used, to, I used to try to figure out a more effective way of application for product as well a long time ago. So I actually used to buy like Dixie cups or Solo cups and I would poke holes in them and use like, um, not wire hangers, but like ornament hangers to hang out on my plant. And I would dump 
product into these cups and then I would hang them on the plant because the active adults are going to crawl up the plant up, up the cup into your plant basically um, and then just years ago uh, biocontrol companies started creating what they call hanging baskets where they are already pre-made for you to do an application for so what's difficult is when somebody's like yeah I followed the directions and this is what happened uh, sometimes you can't give that information out you know on on the uh, on the application so we actually try to provide uh, like an application sheet uh, for specific species when we work with people as well so that you know when they're choosing to do something again we want them to be effective so we want to give them the most information to be effective which is how to do the application at that stage so that that's really what comes to mind on my, uh, on my side when you ask that does the choice between using say for example a hanging basket or a sachet do, do those different application techniques um, depend on the the type of beneficial that you're adding or the size of the garden or just simply the preference of the grower uh, it actually touches on a lot of different things. Preference of the grower, yes. Uh, there's a couple different uh, ways of doing an application. You know, there's one thing called the slow-release sachet, which is an actual breeding bag is what I call it, that slowly release predatory mites into the canopy of your plant. And what I stress to people is these are truly used as a preventative maintenance, you know what I mean? Because if you have a problem, you want to use active adults. If you have a problem, if you have a pest issue, you don't want to use slow-release sachets on that plant. Yes, it will be helpful in the long run, so you can do the sachets and the adults in the same application, basically. That gives you more immediate control, and then it gives you long-lasting control with the sachet that you've already applied to it. Um, different species are available in different, t in different forms of application. For the most part, they come in slow-release sachets. Uh, they come in active adults, which, which I call you know the bulk liter containers or five-liter bags can be used for uh, commercial growers that use more product um, you know there's flyers that can just be released that fly you know that can kind of encompass your growing space on their own where you don't have to apply them to every single plant or every third plant by any means uh, so it just depends on the predator that you use um, I know that a lot of the the breeders of these beneficial insects, they sell them with application rates that were devised for <laughs> ornamental plants, and cannabis is a very unique lady. Um, what, <laughs> what you know? What have you seen as far as uh, you know any difference in application rates for cannabis versus you know boring industry standard plants? Yeah, it, it's a it's a great question, and it's uh, I, I don't say unfortunate that I can't change my information online because I get that information direct from the suppliers who actually culture the product. You know what I mean? Uh, but when you touch on it, when I started recommending in cannabis agricultural rates, I would calculate out by square footage. You know what I mean? Is kind of what I used to do per acre, basically. Uh, calculate out in square footage what can be used, and I just remember selling my first liter of soil mites for fungus gnat control, and God, the guy had I don't know how. How many plants in his you know thousand square foot room and i'm like yeah you know one, one liter of soil mites per 1,000 square feet. You know that's the rate I've used for the last eight years. It, it'll knock the shit out of your fungus gnats. And uh, again, you know, two weeks later, he's like, "No, it's not working." And that's when I got into, well, why isn't it working? You know what I mean? And the amount of water that's being applied to the plant, because not not just for the hell of it. You know, it, it's because it demands it so much. It grows like a weed. It it needs that water, and it, it and basically for uh, for growth at that stage. So just starting from that small arena. 
of more soil mites more often. We had to get some in every single pot. So I ran trials for, I don't know if it was four months or so, you know, offering products, splitting product with people who were interested in using it on, on kind of formulated a plan for them moving forward on how to be effective using this product. And is it going to be cost effective on our end? You know, but when, when you talk about cost effectiveness, you, you take out labor of spraying, you take out the health of the plant, basically, you take out any chance of, of getting knocked for a pesticide test, uh, all these different things. So I guess looking over it and talking to the guys in the office here that we deal with, there's very few growers that we have that use traditional ag rates and are very effective with it. It's very few and far between. So for the most part, you can times the rates by five just to give you a generalization. But it also depends on what you're doing on the back end. You know, uh, you made the comment about hit it, you know, or, or apply it and leave it. You know, earlier on in the conversation, and you know, you can't do that with anything. You can't do that if you have a spray program because you still need to monitor. There still may be a pest issue or a pest presence at that stage where if you don't take care of it right away, it's going to you know quickly become larger and larger as you move on. So. Uh, um, you know, I hope that kind of kind of helps a- answer the question that you were looking for. Yeah, yeah, it does. So, do you do you find that based on bioregions, for example, where where the plants are being grown in the U.S., that you either need to choose different beneficial insects or the application rate changes? Because I assume that if you're doing applications, um, you know, in in the cold Northwest, it's going to be a lot different in the hella hot Arizona. Yeah, no, great question. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, one, you know, choosing the correct species for the pests that you're after. You know, number two, it it does have to do with the heat uh, and also the humidity of a region where you're at. You know, a lot of the times lower humidities are going to dry out the eggs of the predatory mites, which causes problems or which delays reproduction, basically. It takes longer to do that. So, you know, I've been approached by a lot of people who, you know, they're running 10, 15 percent humidity throughout the summer. And my comment is, no, these these are not documented to do that. We may need to do, again, applications more often to be effective. We may switch it up rather than using these sachets, which are probably going to release slowly in your crop and not a little bit quick, more quickly at a place that has 50% humidity or 60, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is fairly ideal for reproduction. Um, and I just go into, again, all honesty, I'm like, hey, man, you know, this was three years ago. I had a guy that's like, hey, your sachet has lasted five, five weeks. We had 12% humidity for three months. I'm like, I, I don't understand how that was possible. But showing them how to open the packages up, looking to see if there's reproduction, finding them on their plants and what they're doing, I'm like, good. You know, so it's, it's nice to be able to push the boundaries of what they're documented to do specifically and tell people it's not documented for it. Generally, we don't recommend to do it, but this is what I would probably choose in your specific area. It's built a little bit better for the lower humidities. It's able to reproduce a little bit quicker than another species that we have, you know, and we kind of go from there. And that's where the feedback comes in, Shango. That's where we can't just give somebody a program, they walk away and use it and never hear from them again because there's always feedback that we can use from everybody that we can help other growers with on. If this didn't work, well, you know, we had another guy that did this, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was very successful for them. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with, you know, again, from the very beginning is, you know, sanitation, plant health, monitoring, scouting, being able to know what pests are what. So pest identification is key that we're using the correct species from the very beginning or we're not going to be very successful. So right on. I get that. Can beneficial insects be used in outdoor crops? Yeah, we use it many times. Yeah, all, all last year. 
All last year. Indoors do, is great. Uh, outdoors, yes, for sure. There's no problems using it. Do they do the do the beneficial insects walk away from the cannabis plants? I mean, I always figured that at least with an indoor uh, program, they were you know they were penned, they were captured inside of the greenhouse yeah. or the building or whatever. But if you go outdoors, you know they could just walk away. Yeah, so it depends on what you're using, obviously. You know, there's flyers that make me nervous on if you release them, they're just going to fly away. But you can also create uh, uh, attractant plants to keep them near, basically. Um, that gives them an additional food source if they don't find it on the plants that you are that you have. Uh, as you talk about them walking away, it becomes like an application technique as well, you know. If you're applying them directly onto your plant, there's so much canopy space that these guys need to move. You know how small they are. You know, in order to walk around a plant, it's going to take them quite a while to to do so. Um, for the most part, they're not going to crawl down your stem and out into the dirt and go somewhere else. Uh, in our experience, they generally stay on your plant. They're looking for food, you know, they're predators versus the pests that you guys have that, you know, a lot of the times they're slow because all they're doing is sitting there feeding on your plant. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Versus versus what we offer people, they're looking for food. Generally, they're going to be a little bit faster, basically, and they need to find food in order to maintain. Right on. Do you have to use higher application rates outdoors? Yeah, again, it, you know, it's a general question, but it uh, depends on the region that you're in. It depends on the humidity that you are. Uh, but again, it depends on a plant count as well and what the sizes of your canopy are. We, we find it, you know, a six by six plant is treated differently than a one by one plant. There's a lot more canopy space that needs to be covered. So yes, I would say so. Yeah. One of the things that I find interesting is that, you know, the these beneficial insects and, and how they do what they do, it's not, it's not new. It is something that the horticulture industry has been been using for decades and what you are bringing to the table is being the you know being the first person in the industry to start transitioning and and learning the ins and the outs of applying what's been used in horticulture for decades to specifically what's going on in cannabis so as a corollary to that i have this question are there new any new beneficial insects that you see coming online in the future is like is there like you know the the new one, the new model, or or is that not does that not really happen much in the beneficial insect scene where you've got your you've got your set of specific and generalized beneficials and all of the novelness and innovation is happening on application and education. No, it's a good question, and uh, for the most part, as far as I know, and it could be false, but I don't think it is, a lot of the things that are cultured and uh, supplied in the United States, they have to be native to our specific area in order for us to offer them to other people. So I think pretty much what here, what is here now is, is what's going to be around for a while. There are companies that offer different species or a additional species to do different things basically and and each company has their own you know uh they have their own choices of what they want to culture on their own um but you know when you when you start working with us again i think like i said in the pre in our previous conversation is that we try to take a lot of that information out for people and just give you what we feel is the most effective and which which limits you know to make keep it simple i guess you'd say with a lot of people is we try to simplify our responses towards people uh but i yeah i i think what it is is it needs to be native in order for it to be sold and supplied here in the united states 
Yeah, right on. So, um, you know, right here before we wrap up, I, I want to give you, you know, a platform to talk specifically to the commercial, you know, master growers who are listening and are interested in moving away from the, the synthetics or the sprays in, in any way and move over. But they, they still have got concerns about, um, you know, how much risk there will be during the transition and also would they you know decrease in yields so so you know why don't you just address that on our way out here what do you say to the commercial grower who wants to go in this direction but they just they need it put in the right terms for them <laughs> it's a, a great question and i think uh you know throughout our conversation today i've touched on a lot of points for for people to feel a little bit more comfortable using this is you know you touched on about even how beneficial insects have been cultured for decades you know what i mean when i started doing using them 10 years ago you know i remember going to a class and there was three people in the class and then the next year there was 10 and then there was 50 and then there was 100 then there's only standing room as the years go on and people become educated on what you can use them for um, i think that's really going to steer a lot of people in the right direction uh, a lot of the pesticide testing is going to steer people to use beneficial insects first and if they need to use chemicals by any means they you know, they, in order to make them a little bit more comfortable, uh, they might reach for that as well. Uh, but I think what you're going to see is higher flower content on the back end. You know, uh, you're not going to be spraying your plants with anything, which is going to which is going to cause no stress, which allows them to grow to their natural capacity. I mean, that's what I saw when I ran trials ten years ago: is 30% growth increase on plants that I just use beneficial insects for. You know, aphids, spider mites, fungus gnats versus a traditional program of horticultural oils that I use on a different plant, basically, 30, 30% increase. It, it's amazing to see. And once you see, you start believing, and then you start uh, and then you start seeking more information on, God, how can I do this even better? Uh, we get a lot of reports from a lot of different people uh, telling us about how healthy their plants are uh, these days and how much more flower they're receiving. And, you know, it, it's, it's not everybody, but uh, there are people that uh, ha have really taken the time to do that and to seek the information to be effective for it. And it, I don't want to push anybody to do it if they don't want to. Again, you know, our website says choose beneficial insects. If you're interested, we're, we're more than happy to help. And to give you the, the specific information that you need uh, and to help you, you know, from day one moving forward, because obviously we, we want to work with you five years down the road. We, we, we don't want to just talk with you one day, give you product, it doesn't work, and you'll be done with it. Even if somebody doesn't order product for a while, we still call and follow up to see how things are going. What happened? What can we do different? You know what I mean? Uh, so there is, it can be time consuming for some people to try to learn how to do this. Uh, but if you have somebody at your company that's willing to grasp this and really go into it and seek information and do it, then that's going to be your best bet at this stage. Right on. Well, uh, Shane, thank you so much for being an educator about this. You know, the show, you know, the Shaping Fire show, we are very clearly, you know, probiotic, living soil, working with nature and not down with synthetic inputs. And we don't take, you know, synthetic input advertising money. And so it's very refreshing for me to talk about a topic where we can we can get uh, garden pests under control by working with nature instead of trying to dominate nature. No, I agree. And I appreciate uh, you reaching out, Shango. It's nice talking with you. Right on. Thanks for being on the show, Shane. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Take care, man. See ya. 
If you'd like to find out more about Shane Young, Beneficial Insects, and Natural Enemies, you can visit their website at naturalenemiesbiocontrol.com. So uh, Natural Enemies really only serves the commercial industry, but their website is still a fantastic place to get educated at naturalenemiesbiocontrol.com. And if you'd like to hear more from Shane Young, you can check out my YouTube channel at forward slash Shango Lose to check out Shane Young speaking on Vashon Island. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolose.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.